Welcome to the X-Men Task Podcast. My name is Willie Simpson. My name is Sonia Rappaport. And today, Sonia, we start a brand new chapter of the X-Men Task Podcast. We enter the Spider-Man years. <laughs> right, in which the X-Men are only going to make a few appearances, but that's okay. <laughs> a few he- appearances here and there. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was first conceiving us doing all the Spider-Man episodes after we finished X-Men, a lot of it had to do with the X-Men's appearance in the Spider-Man animated series. Oh, really? I thought it was just for the love of Spider-Man. Well, it's also for the love of Spider-Man. Or Spider-Man, as I like to call him. <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> the plural of Spider-Man. Spider-Men? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking you have Spider-Man and then Spider-Men, and then the plural of Spider-Men is Spider-Man. <laughs> what? <laughs> I just always think of it as like, you know how like a lot of Jewish last names end in M-A-N, but it's it's not Goldman, usually it's it's Goldman. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So whenever I like read the word Spider-Man, a lot of times in my brain I say it's Spider-Man. Wow, we were off to a flying start. <laughs> <laughs> um, in my mind, I wanted to pretend like this was a brand new episode of a whole new era, but really, <laughs> this is the 92nd overall episode we've recorded of these things. I ruined it for you, huh? <laughs> um, no, it's okay. Um, so this first episode is called Night of the Lizard, and uh, believe it or not, the lizard is the first main bad guy Spider-Man will tackle. But first, some uh, minor history about the show. Uh, it is the product, not of Saban, which X-Men was of. It's the product of the Marvel Animation Studios, which I think was like a short-lived production studio they had in the 90s. Um, this was all cobbled together right around the time when Marvel was having some sort of uh, economic bankruptcy and collapse as a company. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing that well in the 90s. There was a com- comic book boom and then a crash. And Marvel did not manage their assets that well, which eventually led to the selling off of all their various properties to different film studios. In the case of Spider-Man, it would eventually go to Sony. Uh, X-Men went to Fox along with Fantastic Four, and then there's a bunch of other properties that were not not picked up or picked up by studios, and then, you know, uh, they were lapsed over time. So Spider-Man was created in an era when Marvel's having a lot of success with their cartoons, and this one was no exception, but really their overall company wasn't doing that well. Hmm. So it's it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, the main producer of the show is a man named John Semper, and he's one of the primary executive producers and writers of the series. And he mentioned that because of my, Marvel's financial situation, they really didn't even have any creative control over the city, series itself, mm-hmm. which is kind of stunning to think about. Um, they did allow for the input of Stan Lee a lot in the first season. He had a heavy hand, uh, but from things I've read, Stan Lee's involvement was similar to that of X-Men, where I think they ended up having to put Stan in a corner a little bit because his brain was still in 1964 when it came to Spider-Man and comic, comic books in general. What does that mean? It's just I, th- I feel like a lot of his suggestions were probably a little outdated, and the you know his idea of what the character is or should be was just based on him remembering how he helped write the character of Steve Ditko in the 1960s. Mm. So you know I, I think Stan actually did have more of a hand in this one than he definitely had in X Men. In X Men, they definitely essentially politely told Stan, Stan to you know get lost. Mm-hmm. But in Spider Man, he was more of a presence here. Um, I read an anecdote that 
like Stanley randomly saw uh, randomly uh, he randomly saw an episode of Seinfeld, and he comes into the the animation studios the next day. He's like, "We got to incorporate Seinfeld into Spider Man. Do something <laughs> like that." Huh. And, and it's like I don't know how the writers took suggestions like that, but right. Stanley was a little bit all over the place. Okay, uh, you know, God bless him and God rest his soul at this yeah. point. But um. So this show, I think there's 65 episodes uh, produced, five seasons. Um, and what was the overlap with the X-Men animated series? When did that happen? Yeah. I think it happened in season two or three. So we'll get to it sooner rather than later, but it's in the middle of the series. So this show started in 1994, two years after X-Men started, mm-hmm. and it ended in 1999, two years after X-Men ended. Oh, so, so... there is overlap. Yeah, okay. Right, Yeah. Um, and not just the X-Men, there's a whole bunch of other characters that make appearances, like the Punisher. No, 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 I don't mean appearances, oh. I just mean, like, that was the Saturday morning cartoon lineup for a while there, right? Where yeah. there was, like, X-Men and Spider-Man. Right, and, and Batman, Batman was in there, yeah. Yeah, so, so there were, like, a few good years there where, like, new episodes <laughs> were coming out at the same time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, a, uh, it was a pretty, it was really, uh, 90s cartoon ratings in its heyday yeah spider-man had enormous ratings so did x-men and so did batman for children's shows for cartoons you don't really see anything like that today i don't even i read somewhere uh something recently that there's not even saturday morning cartoons anymore in the tra- right. traditional sense although actually i think some of it was after school cartoons too wasn't it well they would show reruns after school with cartoons i think that's how i saw most of it actually. right like i think batman would air after school as well. Yeah. Not so much the X-Men. I think X-Men was limited to the weekends. I don't know. I don't remember about Spider-Man. Hmm. But, um, you know, generally when I was a kid, I, I guess I would have been 10 years old when this show first aired. Um, it was uh, extremely exciting to have Spider-Man. It was like you had Batman and X-Men, which were wonderful. But Spider-Man was like the extra drop in the chemical mix that really led to an explosion of of excitement yeah. being a child fan of television <laughs> the thing with the spider-man cartoon and it's true the comics also is that he really breaks the fourth wall because he talks to himself all the time but it feels like he's talking to you the audience right the kid watching him right and it lets you in on the world of what it's really like to be a superhero you think he's so cool for doing that yeah he's definitely giving a monologue in many episodes to somebody like he's reciting a diary from his life yeah um and that that in many ways captures the essence of spider-man from the comic book where he a lot of his because he's a solo superhero, he doesn't have teammates to bounce off. Right. The exposition has to happen as, like, an inner right. monologue. Yeah. yeah. And really, I'd say this show is one of the greatest examples in any medium of entertainment of an inner monologue being a primary narrative device. Right. I mean, now looking at it, it's, like, kind of corny, but it just works so well. Yeah. Because it, he's so emo. <laughs> <laughs> and for kids that are, like, 10 and up, that's perfect, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> or adults, whatever. Right. Um, the main character of Spider-Man is played by an actor named Christopher Daniel Barnes, who, in real life, you might recognize him from the relaunched Brady Bunch movies. I think he played the oldest brother, Greg. Oh. Which is uh, pretty interesting. If you remember those films, they had some pretty good actors in them, um, including, uh, I think, Christine Taylor played Marsha, right. who was Ben Stiller's wife for a long time. Mm-hmm. They got recently divorced. But uh, anyway, so that's where you may know him from real life. Um, but he really imbues Spider-Man with a wonderful voice and just 
I don't know, like, he owns the character in his own small way. Yeah. It's hard to say he owns it completely, like, you can make arguments for other animated actors in history. Like, a lot of people insist Mark Hamill owns the Joker. Right. Um, which is also very argumentative, because there's a lot of great actors played him. But I, I, Spider-Man's had many incarnations, both animated and uh, in live action. Mm-hmm. I can't say that this guy owns the character, but I'd say he's just a real touchstone in the history. He does. He uh, performances, gives it right? 110%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a, and all the, vo- the voice acting in the show in general is incredible. There's a lot. They had a lot of celebrity voice actors come in and do parts. In this episode alone, you had Hank Azaria, who we all know from The Simpsons most famously. He plays some minor characters in the episode, and he also plays Eddie Brock at Venom more famously. Yeah. Later on, you'll get uh, Mark Hamill will come on the show as well. He'll play the Hobgoblin. Um, and in J. Jonah Jameson uh, is played by Ed Asner, who's a very famous actor and, and voice actor in his later life, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, there'll be some more, uh, I think, sprinkling of some minor celebrities here and there as we go through. Um, but really, just a solid voice cast overall, a great ensemble piece. Yeah. Um, every character has a lot of energy and vim and vigor, you know. Uh, even, like, you know, yeah. I was going yeah, to say, like, you know, Mary Jane and Felicia Hardy, you would think they'd be very similar character, like, characters overall, because they're both, you know, beautiful young women that are in Spider-Man's dating group. Uh, but really, they, <laughs> they have their unique personalities, and even minor characters like Deborah Whitman we see in this episode come mm-hmm. through very strongly and all the other characters and the daily Pl- bugle you know that where he works it, it's just like a great ensemble cast as good as the x-men in my opinion as good as batman it, mm-hmm. i mean like overall i think spider-man i'd say it's i'd say it's like th- perceived as the third place show from 90s animated cartoons but really in my opinion is as good as the other ones in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Just uh, a different flavor. Right. Different flavor. Um, it has different strengths and different weaknesses. I'd say, like, the biggest uh, strength of this sh- series... Is its responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> right, because there's so much great power that... Uh-huh. Right, okay, that's funny. Um, no, I'd say the biggest strength is its consistency of narrative, that they really... They just keep you... It's just... It's just each episode so often connects with the last one. Yeah great serialization right and they yeah. and even in future episodes where they forget like a narrative thread they'll bring it back and they'll do a really stirring recap mm-hmm. uh oh, weirdly i re-watching this first episode um an impression i got was that the music does so much to tie the narrative together in a weird way that um the music is like non-stop chugging throughout every scene. I don't think there's yeah. any quiet moments in the show. It adds to the emo quality of it for sure. It like heightens yeah. the emotional aspects of it. Right. It's a real roller coaster of emotions musically. Speaking of music, what do you think about the opening music, <laughs> the theme music for this, which we're not using as the podcast intro? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're actually using the theme from the, uh, the short-lived 1970s live-action Spider-Man uh, show just because i like it so much it's some cold yeah, hard too. funk and it's also my <laughs> ringtone um uh i think it's iconic in its own way it's very memorable people like will remember it and be able to sing it you know spider blood spider blood radioactive spider blood and sing it yeah. right um <laughs> joe perry performed guitar on it the lead, the lead guitar player from aerosmith he didn't write the song mm-hmm. um but you know it's very memorable uh very 
uh, electricized. It's kind of like weirdly, it touches on themes from the original Spider-Man theme song from the '60s, mm-hmm. like melodically or yeah. at least phrase-wise. It's like a riff on that. Yeah, yeah like it, it's not quite, but it's like a nice updated version of it. Uh-huh. Although that's a killer theme song too, the original '60s. I don't know if I would say if I would say it's nice as it's up. It is updated right, for its time. I don't know if I like it in particular, but it is memorable and that uh, like. The hard rock, you know, the electric guitar sound yeah. or whatever is very early 90s. Yeah. Um, it's like, a, it's just the refrain of Spider-Man. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. You really, it's so, you don't, I don't, you don't hear it as like a, a rock anthem throughout the show. It's def, that's made very orchestral. Right. So in a way, it's like, it's based on this hard rock riff, like you said, but they, it, really, it's more cinematic that During refrain. The show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. During the show, it is yeah. right, and it's a great refrain, I think. So, you know, it's funny with Spider-Man: Homecoming. Briefly in the introduction of that movie, they used the melody from the 1960s series uh-huh. to introduce it. They they made it into an orchestra version. Yeah, they really, you know, they. they I would suggest that it wouldn't kill them to use this refrain, this melodic refrain, too, in some future movie as well. I think it it's deserving and nostalgic enough and memorable hmm. that they could get away just like as a small like uh you know nostalgic wink to the fans in the, in the same way they use the 60s theme. Yeah. You know, it's it's really ingrained in a whole generation's brains. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great musical score in general though in the sense of I I like that the music's always playing throughout the entire episode. It really lets you in the binging age, if you binge a bunch of these in the row, it really lets you just keep watching it for some reason. You mm. know, the music is just carries you through from episode to episode. And it also adds to, like, the strange, fast-paced nature to this show, too. Yeah, it does keep it moving for some reason. Yeah, I mean, this show... But the... it's not, like, it's not obtrusive, though. Like, no. I don't... It's not that I stop, like, take pause to notice the music playing all you, the time. You use the, you use the word uh, emo. I would use the word melodramatic. Yeah, okay. It's a, it's a soap opera-y show. Right. It's very melodramatic. The music is very melodramatic, and almost in that classic, like, 1950s soap opera or 1950s melodrama way, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think it, it actually works with Spider-Man, you know, because it's serialized and it's about, uh, you know, self-doubt and inner I know. Anguish. I was just thinking the way that the X-Men animated series, the themes there are really all around, uh, like, looking outwards at the world around you and, like, social justice type issues right. with discrimination. Um, I feel like Spider-Man is kind of the opposite of that mm. and it speaks to the same, like age level or like interest group maybe but instead of looking outward it's really looking inward it's right. like all these internal struggles that he deals with yeah. as he like learns and grows through life and, yeah you know it's like also very relatable themes yeah which is different definitely um I, the last thing i want to say about the show overall is that i love how relentless it is in its pacing mm. that's another thing that goes along with the orchestration it's just each, you know, not so much in the first episode, but there's a, it's definitely close to how it's going to get in its prime. But in episodes, it's just the, the narrative plot threads and all the scenes and the subplots, they all just converge like trains running towards each other from five different directions. Mm-hmm. And Spider-Man's in the middle of it, you know, causing chaos. And that to me is the most addictive and wonderful aspect of this show, that it's just like a runaway f- like freight train 
you know, just with like all this stuff like piling on all all the different problems Spider-Man has being in his personal life, uh, his professional life, his school life, his Spider-Man life, mm-hmm. uh, all that stuff is just like like you know like a hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> and Spider-Man's often in the middle of it, and um, it's just it's just great. I don't know what else to say. I mean, that's why I I really wanted to do this and um and really want to relive the series and talk about it is because I really think it's, like, captivating. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were in the middle of doing our X-Men podcast, right? We were limiting ourselves to one a week, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, we're not going to, like, watch five ahead and then have to rewatch them to record an episode about. Yeah. But I, I had that desire. Right. So uh, this is when the Spider-Man show was all on Hulu. I don't know if it's there anymore. I think it's gone. Um, I actually had to buy all five seasons on Amazon Prime. Uh-huh. That's how we're watching it. But, you know, there's multiple ways to get it. Anyway, point is, I, I had that desire to watch a Marvel show, like, binge one through. So in the middle of X-Men, I started binging the entire Spider-Man series. Oh, so it's fresh for you. Pretty fresh, anyway. Well, yeah, it's pretty fresh. Um, and I, I watched... It took me, like, two weeks to get through the entire series. I forget what it was, but I was just watching them all the time, and I loved it. And I was just... I was like... As I was watching, I was like, this is better than the X-Men. Or that, That's not... <laughs> Not necessarily what I mean. It was more fun than the X-Men, I thought, to go through it from, from start to end. Huh. You know, it was, like I said, a runaway, runaway freight train. Uh, so exciting. So many, like, uh, like, oh, wow, I can't wait till we get to the Doctor Strange episode. I know it's coming. I remember yeah. that. I can't wait to get to the Punisher episode. I can't right. wait to the Secret Wars happen with the Fantastic Four. And, like, all these things. And they come in such a beautiful, wonderful way. And the show ends on a really tragic... Um, uh, cliffhanger too mm. with Mary Jane spoilers you know mm. like and so it's just like it it ends and you're just like you need more your eyes are bugging out of your head right now as you're yeah, talking about right. it <laughs> so uh, I'm like now I'm really excited to go through it week by week and and relive like each episode and and just let the tension and the drama build and really like go into the heart of like what makes the show great all right, let's do it. All right, so this first episode, it's kind of like, it's not a bad episode, but it's not a remarkable episode. It's a good setup. It's a one-off, right. And it's it's not an origin episode, too, which is pretty interesting that they didn't feel the need to do Spider-Man's backstory. I think that... I enjoy that. Yeah, that episode comes way later on in the show's history. He recaps his origin, I think, to like a little girl or something. I might be mistaken there. It probably comes up in other different ways, too. Don't they show part of it in the opening yeah, credits? Yeah, they do. Yeah, I mean, you, not credits, right. the opening song. Right, you get the idea. And it, it's yeah. kind of funny. It's like they when they were doing the movies, the first movie had an origin, right, with Tobey yeah. Maguire. Right. And then when they rebooted it a few years later, they felt the need to do the origin again. Right. And then by the third time they rebooted it, they're like, we don't even need to do the origin. People right. understanding Spider-Man. I feel like when this show came out, I wonder if that was the same idea. It's like, People know he's Spider-Man. There's no need to do his origin. Who cares about his origin? Yeah. You know, the character's been around for 30-plus years. I uh, just don't I don't think it's necessary to do an origin right away, no matter what, because if mm. the character's engaging enough, it's like you jump in with his life, and you see all, him having all these crazy adventures and meeting his friends and enemies and everything. Yeah. And then... When they give you an origin story, you're excited for it. You're like, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. you find yeah. out all his secrets and you're stunned. Right, yeah. You save it as like a reveal for later. Yeah, I think it's way better that way. Yeah, because you establish the world and the characters, like they've, they're they at a certain time and place. They're ju- you're just like caught up in the middle of their action. And then you backtrack sort of on the show's more successful and on its feet. 
and it makes the origin that much more interesting. I kind of agree. Um, in animation, you could really do that a lot easier than you can if you have actors that are aging into a part, mm. you know? But, um, but you're right. True. So this one, it's, it's a lizard episode. Um, the lizard is a classic, super early Spider-Man villain. I forget what issue he's from, like three or four, maybe even two, uh, but, or one or two, I don't know. But he's like in the top number, like he's in the first five issues of the entire um, Spider-Man series. Um, and it's pretty faithful to what we get in the comics. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Kurt Connors is one of Spider-Man's uh, professors at uh, Empire State University, the fictional version of Columbia, I guess, mm-hmm. in the Marvel Universe, where I think also, like, Reed Richards and Dr. Doom went to as well as, mm-hmm. as teenagers or uh, college kids. Um, Spider-Man, uh, or Peter Parker, is a top scientist student there. Um, among other things he does. Um, I thought for sure when we started watching this that he was a grad student, but he's not. I'm pretty sure he's an undergrad. Okay. So it's not, like, quite what you get in a lot of the comic books. But the show runs so long, maybe by the end of it he I don't, is a grad student. I'm not sure. That's a good question. I don't – I can't fully remember because I, I – I've, every time I watched the show, I was not looking for that detail. Now it's it just feels more – Interesting to know. because you're old. <laughs> right, yeah. And you're in grad school currently, and I see how it's grinding you to a bone. And I like to imagine, like, how hard it would be to actually be a grad student and be a superhero in your spare time. Not possible. Right, I, I can't see how that's possible. Um, so, I, for right away, at least, he's an undergrad at ESU. Um, so, you know, he's not so much in Queens that much. He's, like, there to live with his Aunt May. Yeah. But he's, like, a lot of the time he does spend, like, the Upper West Side, I guess, or, like, Upper Manhattan, Mm -hmm. where his college is. Um, uh, I'm not sure where the Daily Bugle is supposed to be. I'm guessing it's in Midtown. In a lot of Spider-Man media, it's the Flatiron Building. Mm -hmm. You know, that famous, like, triangle Mm -hmm. wedge building. Um, Do you know where that is in Manhattan? Like, 23. Third and Broadway around there. So, what would you describe that neighborhood Gramercy as? Gramercy Park, I guess. Okay, so then it's like a little bit further downtown. So he's swinging up and down the island. Is the point? I don't know. In the I forget in the cartoon if it's the Flatiron Building. I don't think it is in this All one. All I know is the Kingpin is in the Chrysler <laughs> Building. Every time I look at the Chrysler <laughs> Building in real life, if I'm like passing by, I'm like, oh, Kingpin. <laughs> oh man, the, the King, talking about the Kingpin and Smythe is going to be so great on this show. It's, it's, I'm, I cannot wait to look forward to that. So, um, you know, this episode establishes Spider-Man's world a little bit. Uh, he was working at the Daily Bugle. Uh, Ed Asner is playing J. Jonah Jameson. It's a great part. Um, he's really, you know, he's kind of, he, he's, like an, he's an obstacle for Peter Parker. I wouldn't say he's an outright bad guy in the show because he, mm-hmm. he has some heroic moments himself going forward. Yeah. But a lot of time he gives Spider-Man or Peter Parker a hard time. He hates Spider-Man, obviously. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we meet some other characters. Robbie Robertson, he's one of the editors at the Daily Bugle. Um, I guess he's Spider-Man's he's boss. Yeah, he's yeah. a nice guy. Peter Parker is a photographer. Um, so uh, they established that Peter Parker, his photographs he can get of Spider-Man or the various supervillains will earn him extra money which he needs. At first, he wants to spend the money selfishly on himself. He's really, like, he gets a glint in his eye. He's imagining what he could buy, you know, like his a motorcycle. motorcycle or his car. Right. But then he goes home and he's quickly reminded that Aunt May is pretty poor. 
and he so has he got bills to pay right so and he's he, gonna help her out right he loves aunt may she's always struggling she's super kind and nice this is the more matronly older aunt may traditional aunt may i would say yeah than what we get in the modern movies where mm-hmm. it's marissa tomei <laughs> i mean matronly it's like she's borderline elderly in this right one, yeah right? so you would imagine she probably doesn't have a job and like it makes sense that she'd be like financially struggling right i like that they introduce eddie brock right away who's a rival photographer mm-hmm. he's uh voiced by hank azaria which is awesome um and you know he's becomes venom later so but they establish him as an early rival for peter parker they, they're slowly building up uh eddie brock's personal hatred of peter parker and spider-man right in fact that's like in a large way he's duped by the combination of them by the end of this episode (laughs) so it's like they 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 take great care to build up these interpersonal relationships and things over many episodes that when the the payoff comes in the form of the big story event like the transformation of eddie brock into venom Mm -hmm. you're so wrapped up in the characters already that it makes it extra exciting and it really like lends like heavy weight power to the storytelling you know so it's it's an aspect of what makes the show great um, you know, a, a weakness of the show, I'd say, is the inconsistent animation. Yeah, that computer animation, it's new because it's the mid-90s and they're excited to use it. I don't know if it's cheaper or if it's just that it's innovative that they want to use it, but it does not look good. The hand-drawn uh, parts of this show are, like, by far better looking. Right. And I think it gets a little sharper going along too. I think in this first episode the animation looks a little bulgy and like Disney cartoony at times, mm-hmm. especially when we were introduced to these sewer guys at the beginning. Yeah. Um it does get better over time. I think it but gets even better. So the, yeah. the drawn parts are, are just like way better. Like the computer animated parts stick out because right. they, they just look so bad. And this is another show where we can't have real guns. We're gonna get more laser blasts. Um, I think there's also there's probably it's re- veering to X Men world where there's avoiding of words like death and dying explicitly. Yeah. I think they go there a little more than X Men, but still it's a bit <laughs> censored. Uh, another thing I want to say is Spider Man. I don't think in the series is allowed to throw a punch, mm. believe it or not, and kicking isn't really something he's allowed to do. He can kick like a few times, and someone did a count. It's like he kicks four times in the whole series. Mm-hmm. I forget what it is, but he mainly is. Using his web slingers and hopping around and... Weaponizing webs. Yeah, so... And you never even notice that he's not, like, directly punching people in the face. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's ne- that doesn't even register as a complaint of mine, that he's not, like, directly attacking people with his limbs like that. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, uh, back to this episode. Uh, it's a classic lizard, lizard origin story. Dr. Kurt Connors, uh, he, he's, has, he's missing an arm. Uh, he experiments on himself. Uh, he uses a technology based in the fictional field of neogenics, mm-hmm. which is a, a buzzword that's going to come up a lot in this series. Yeah, the the wide world of neogenics, and they I think they they update. I correct me if I'm I, I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but I believe that his own spider bite. It's not so much it's a radioactive spider; it's a neogenic spider. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because it, it's been blasted by genetic stuff this recombinator or whatever right yeah so even though the theme song talks about radioactive spider blood really the show's more about genetic they updated uh radioactivity in the atomic age science to genetic age right which is smart and makes sense yeah so um anyway uh peter parker can get a thousand dollars if he can get a picture of the lizard he wants to give it to aunt may 
Um, along the way, he runs into Deborah Whitman, one of the minor side characters, who Spider-Man dismisses as like a kid sister to him, even though she's also a like gorgeous blonde with uh, facial symmetry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she's super smart. Yeah, she like, also works in the genetics lab with him. Right. I don't get why he's not that interested in Deborah Whitman. To me, it's like a we- it's almost like a touch of anime that you have these like even like the minor female characters who are not love interests are still secretly beautiful uh-huh. you know what i mean and it's just kind of inexplicable why the the main male lead would not respect them or like because she's smart you think that's all it is <laughs> i don't know if that's the reason on this show it might not be in this case I don't right know. but it's just it's one of those weird just putting it out quirks there quirks of um, that's like a common story yeah. trope in, across all kinds of media right and interestingly in this show peter parker is not the nerd that they try to establish him him in so many movies and other media. Mm-hmm. He's like a handsome young college man. Yeah. His look was actually based off of the 1970s uh, TV show for some reason. I have no idea why the animators thought to use that actor as the reference point. Hmm. Um, Nicholas Hammond, I believe is his name. So they actually drew him based off Nicholas Hammond's appearance. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. But anyway, it's th- this is what I like about Spider-Man, that he ages out of his awkward, like, ugly duckling stage mm-hmm. early on. And there's a lot of comics and a lot of movies that are based on an era. But really, it's like prime Spider-Man is, he's in college, he's got... He's dating multiple ladies a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like going from relationship to relationship. It's not just Mary Jane. It's not just Gwen Stacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he he's like competent and smart and an attractive guy. Yeah. So I find that kind of interesting. Interesting. He doesn't wear glasses. You know, when he's walking around, and like even as a super like Clark Kent, he's not wearing glasses. He's just, you know, a normal guy more or less. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I like the college age Spider Man more than any other one, you know. I, I like I I don't see the the obsession to keep showing the teenage Spider Man, which is what they're doing right now at Marvel with the, the movies. movies. Yeah. yeah, I mean I get it. Like they want they they feel like the ultimate appeal to characters. He's fifteen years old, but I don't know. Well, I've I'm always way. maybe it's because I grew <laughs> up with this Spider Man that was in college. You know that this is like the most. There's a wish fulfillment aspect too, I think, for children and teenagers to to um, want to live the life of an older college person as well. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I I thought the wish fulfillment aspect was the reason that they were keeping him young in the current run of movies. I don't care either way, honestly. I think the storytelling yeah. is good in in either one. My only um, problem with it is the sequence of um, the origin stories, like we talked about before. So right. As long as we kind of steer clear of that for now, I'm, I'm cool. Yeah. I mean, I, it just this is just a, a bugaboo that I have that I've always maintained, maybe because I grew up in the '80s and '90s. Mm-hmm. But to me, it was the I wanted to be Indiana Jones, not Indiana Jones Jr. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to be the Ghostbusters, not their teenage friend or their childhood friend. Yeah. Um. I, I like I don't like when they they feel that like kids want to see other kids as the teenage the heroes years or whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean teenage Just, like, let it be what it teenage is. is still is slightly better than kitty aged, yeah. which I feel like happens a lot too. Right. You know, I, I like to I when I was a kid I wanted to imagine myself as an adult, not as a kid. Well, because you want to imagine yourself with real independence and agency. Right. And you don't truly have that when you're a kid, so it doesn't right. make sense to put characters that have all of that freedom into kids' bodies where, like, they wouldn't have freedom in reality. And the power of teenagers and, and college kids is really evident to young children. I, my six, my sister was six years older than I was, 
And she still is. Yeah, she still is. Right. <laughs> and um, and so I remember being, uh, let's say uh, I was 10 years old when the show came out. So she was 16. Her, her, herself and her 16 year old friends look like giants to me. Yeah. And they look, they seem so cool and so hip. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, my sister's 13 years older than me. So same thing. If I was 10 when this came out, she was 23. She was having all kinds of adventures. Like, she was the coolest, you know? Right. And <laughs> and you just, you just like, would marvel at your older, our older sisters in this case and just imagine what kind of, you know, world and lives they're leading. Yeah. And they had so many more privileges and so much more interesting stuff going on mm-hmm. uh, that, um, you know, I like, that is appealing, too, to young kids. So, like, that's, not, uh, for me, another argument for the college-age Spider-Man is, like, it's, like, that's also good wish fulfillment as well. Well, you got him. Right. Well, in this show, we get him. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, the plot of this episode, there's not much going on. We learn the origin of the, the, <laughs> the lizard. Dr. Connors was experimenting on himself with a neogenic recombobulator, which is like a <laughs> rainbow at his arm. Yeah, After injecting awesome. some drugs into himself. Love the way it looks. Right. And it's he, not drugs. It's lizard DNA. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. He gets lizard DNA. Uh, at first, it works. His arm regrows, but then he turns into a lizard. And just like in the comics... When he becomes a lizard, he gets, like, this weird lizard brain. Mm -hmm. So he still sort of remembers that he's Dr. Connors and remembers he has a family. But he gets this, like, weird lizard thing where he wants to turn everyone else into lizards. And he, like, wants to become king of the lizard race. And Well, he says that it's because he wants to be able to heal everybody who needs healing. And I guess the type of lizard that he took the DNA from has the ability to grow back limbs. And he himself had lost uh, an arm, so he was able to grow it back once he became a lizard. So he's like, don't you see? It's so much better to just be lizards. Right. And, like, no one has to be an amputee or, right. like, suffer all these things that humans have to suffer. Right. And he's super and he strong and like, agile. understand why all the humans wouldn't want to be lizards. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he goes a little crazy when he becomes a lizard. Right. The point. It's just funny that, like, this animal instinct takes over and the, the instinct says, like, the lizard should rule the earth, you know? Uh-huh. And that was a big part of the comics. And once he turns back into human, he, like, regains his senses. Yeah. So uh, it's a bit of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation. Um, it's a great classic Spider-Man villain. You know, it wasn't really done that well in the one movie. The Amazing Spider-Man is pretty lame. Um, they were trying to set up in the original Tobey Maguire series. with They had a Dr. Co- Kurt Connors character, but nothing ever came of that. Um, but in the cartoon, it works perfectly. The Lizard's a great villain. Looks great. I love the color scheme. White lab coat purple shirt or purple pants, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Spider-Man, like, follows him into the sewer, uh, rescues some people the lizard was capturing down there, um, some sewer maintenance men that I think he needed to build some technology. Uh, and um, Spider-Man, like, finds the recombobulator and manages to save Dr. Connors. Along the way, Spider-Man <laughs> name drops uh, <laughs> the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, the Defenders, and even the Incredible Hulk. And this will be the first of many more name drops, plus also, like, appearances by these characters, too, in the show. So X-Men had some famous cameos of different characters, but this show really almost introduces these characters as, like, real people in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Um, you know, we'll get, like, Captain America will show up, and yeah. and the X-Men, as we said, and, you know, the D- Daredevil. There's a great couple of Daredevil episodes. It's so fantastic. Um so, you know, the the Marvel animated universe really comes alive between X-Men and Spider-Man, which is really another, like, great feather in a cap for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, what else happens here? So Spider-Man saves him. Brock, who has been spying on Spider-Man and Peter Parker this whole time. Uh, I forget. I guess he's spying on Spider-Man because he's going to Doc Connor's house in the Upper West Side, we presume. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he realizes that Dr. Connors is the lizard. But in the end, Spider-Man protects the identity of Dr. Connors 
So because he, he cares about him, he makes Brock look like a fool in the end in front of J. Jonah Jameson, uh, and um, so it's the first like major insult to Brock. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, Peter gets his thousand dollars, gives it to Aunt May. She's worried that he's jumping into sewers, taking photographs. She's worried for his health, mm-hmm. and that's our first adventure of Spider-Man. Yeah. So like I said, it's like this one's like a relatively basic like introducing you to the world of Spider-Man episode. But it's a nice little story. Yeah, it's a nice little There's story. There's like a good fight scene between him and the lizard down in the sewer. Right. You get to see like all the moral dilemmas he has to confront between like how he's going to save the people that the lizard is hurting and but not hurt the lizard because it's right. really his mentor like, you yeah. Know. Um, you get just like a sense of the overall editing and pace of the show, the the orchestration of the music. It's like a nice summary of what you're in for going forward. Mm-hmm. And they're introducing some ideas that they're going to build on heavily. You know, the lizard will come back many times. Mm-hmm. Dr. Connors comes back many times. Neogenetics uh, comes up again right, and again. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> J. Jonah Jameson, the Daily Bugle, is a major part of the show. Yeah. Aunt May, uh, Eddie Brock as Venom comes back many times. It's great. Yeah. Um, it's really... It, it it learned the best lessons from the X-Men show if it was drawing any inspiration from it, which I'm not even sure it was. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's a serious, like, super entertaining look at Spider-Man. Uh, really wonderful. I, you know, like, there's people have grown up with subsequent animated Spider-Man shows. Like, uh, one is Spectacular Spider-Man, which I think only had two seasons. But people love that show. I've actually seen it. It's very good. Mm-hmm. I don't like the animation style, but the show itself is great. There's other, like, many other Spider-Man cartoons. So I think it's hard to convince everyone out there that this is the best Spider-Man show because a lot of different generations have their favorites, even ones before this show. You know, you could have been a child of the 60s or the 70s and gotten those corny 70s Spider-Man and his amazing friend cartoons. Mm -hmm. Like, that could be your Spider-Man, I guess. But to me, this is, like, the, the most comic like classic comic accurate version and it's a version we grew up with in our generation so it's my favorite and it always will be so we'll explore more about that uh how it connects to the comics you know um how it relates to the movies we'll talk about the movies in the future like we talked about the x-men movies and we'll just go along for the ride you know it's going to be a lot of fun i think so we're happy to have uh everyone who's sticking with us uh to through the spider-man years right through the spider-man years carry (laughs) on with us um it's i hope it's going to be a lot of fun and it's, it's fun to to talk about another classic marvel animated series um so with all that said uh i want to remind people of the normal things uh if you want to discuss us about anything we've said uh join the <laughs> x-men task podcast facebook group uh follow me on twitter at willie simpson rate and review the podcast five stars um sonia do you have any parting words before we go neogenetic recombobulator <laughs> <laughs> okay good night everybody